What medical lessons have we learned from the San Diego wildfires that caused the evacuation of over 300,000 people? Join us today for our show, Out of the Ashes, Medical Lessons from the San Diego Wildfires. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Andrew Krakowski, your host of the Boondocks Wilderness and Travel Medicine Show. With me today is Dr. Peter Wagner, head of the Division of Physiology and former head of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the University of California, San Diego, UCSD, and a former president of the American Thoracic Society. Today, we are discussing the medical lessons learned from the San Diego wildfires. Dr. Peter Wagner, welcome to our program. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with uh, pulmonary medicine. Well, uh, I'm actually Australian, as you may tell from my accent. I grew up and did my medical training in Australia, came to uh, San Diego in 1970 to do research training at UCSD and stayed. And you are mostly involved in what at UCSD? I'm uh, mostly involved in education of medical and pharmacy students and in basic and translational uh, research. And as head of physiology, how did the wildfires of San Diego sort of impact your healthcare practices? I think the best way to describe this is there were two completely different issues that arose. One was a personal issue for myself and my family and uh, trying to avoid the inhalation of the ash. And the other was putting on my scientific hat of uh, knowing something about physiology of the lung and worrying about the effects of the ash on lung structure and function. As you probably know, there were a very large number of people evacuated, and uh, my family was one of them. Thank goodness only for 24 hours, but it was a well-thought-through decision because the air was so bad in the area where we were that to move closer to the coast was a very smart decision to try and avoid some of the uh, ash inhalation. In the Division of Physiology, one of the areas of interest amongst the faculty is what we call particle deposition, which is what happens to small airborne particles when you do inhale them. We're interested in in that for many reasons, but it boils down to a number of factors. And one of these is the size of the particles. Another is the inflammatory nature of the particles is. What we find is that if particles are large and they just are inhaled but kind of attached to the upper airway, by which I mean... They can't make the turn as they're breathed in to go down the airway, but they just hit the back wall of the throat. Then there isn't really much problem because they are simply uh, swallowed or uh, sometimes spat out, but they don't really get to the lung to cause a problem. The problem becomes when the particles are very, very fine, something of the order of one to five microns. A micron is a millionth of one meter. A meter is about a yard. So a millionth of uh, a meter is a very, very small number. Uh, you can't see it by, by eye. You need a microscope. Smaller than the size of a single red blood cell in the blood. Those small particles are small enough that they can turn the corner when you breathe in and go down the airway and reach the distant air spaces in the lung. So this is really ash that we're not talking necessarily about ash that we can see. This is, like you said, microscopic at this microscopic. point. Microscopic, right. In large numbers, they may form a kind of haziness, but an individual particle would actually be very difficult to see. You're quite correct. And they're the dangerous ones because they're the ones that can get all the way down, deposit on the small airways in the walls, and start to cause inflammation. How deep are we talking about into the lung system? Well, we're talking down into what we call the uh, the distal airways, the very small 
bronchi, bronchial tubes that are uh, connecting to the alveoli themselves where the gas exchange takes place. So we're not talking even so much about the very large airways as we are about the small airways. But, of course, depending upon the range of particle size, which may vary from very small up to quite large, there could be particle deposition all the way from the throat down to the alveoli. And how do these small particles wreak havoc? They wreak havoc because they're inflammatory. They are acidic, by and large, these ash particles, and they may contain molecules that are inflammatory. As you know, I'm sure you've heard of the term acid rain that uh, can come from rain that uh, dissolves some of the chemicals that are in the air from the, the combustion of various organic compounds, fuels, and so forth. Well, same kind of thing from the burning of trees. You can get ash particles and an acidic fallout from it, if you will, that can cause inflammatory damage to the airways. And then you have an inflammation, which is a chemical problem, but may, for all intents and purposes, feel like a viral or bacterial infection of the airways. You have an inflammatory reaction, which causes you to cough and bring up phlegm or mucus and uh, and basically have an acute bronchitic episode. And we're not just talking about people with COPD here or other existing medical conditions. We're talking about your typical San Diegan who's out jogging maybe a couple miles every day, normally pretty healthy. These people can be affected just as Absolutely. easily as Absolutely. I can tell you, during those fires, I was bringing up a little bit of phlegm, and I, you know, I'm a non-smoker, a lifetime non-smoker as a pulmonary doc. You know, never had this in my life. But uh, for a couple of days, I was having to clear my throat. So absolutely, this is something that's going to happen to everybody. It doesn't matter whether you're healthy or not to begin with. Now, of course, for the fires this time around, for normal people, that's probably the limit of what it would have caused. Just a little irritation of the airways and a little bit of cough and sputum production. But you raise the issue of patients with asthma, patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, that syndrome we know of that uh, consists of emphysema and chronic bronchitis. People like that with COPD or with asthma, they're already, of course, limited in their lung function. They often have airway inflammation and difficulty clearing secretions and already have some airway uh, problems. Therefore, if you superimpose the chemical irritation of the inhaled ash, then they can just be tipped from coping into not coping and end up being uh, end up having to go to hospital for uh, serious treatment. And did we see a spike at UCSD as a result of the... Uh, now, I think there was, but I have to tell you, I don't have statistics on it, but my understanding is that there were an increased number of people. I think it's absolutely correct for 2003 when it happened four years ago. There was a seemed to be a much heavier pall of ash in the air for some days because of the path taken by the fire back then. It was slightly more to the south of the one that went through Ramona and uh, Rancho Bernardo. So it went over more downtown San Diego, and, and the hospitals that I'm associated with, which is the UCSD hospitals, did seem to see a, a spike in emergency care for respiratory ailments. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Andrew Kurkowski, and I'm speaking with Dr. Peter Wagner from University of California, San Diego. He's the division head of physiology and the former head of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. Tell us a little bit about the preventive measures that people could take to avoid ash damage in the first place. Sure. As was well publicized and uh, made evident to, to citizens during the actual fires, 
perhaps the most important preventive measure is to stay indoors. This is particularly important for people who do have lung disease, such as asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or for the very young or for the very old, who may not be quite as able to withstand the insult as, as the average young, healthy adult. So staying indoors is an important preventive measure because, obviously, if the house is fairly tight, and I'll get to that in a minute, then you can avoid exposure to the ash. So that's, that's the obvious uh, first step. Staying indoors is not going to do you much good if you're not able to shut all the windows and make sure that there aren't gaping holes somewhere to allow a lot of the ash in. And people, I think, were advised to run their air conditioning so that they could use the filters in the air conditioning system to help reduce any ash that did make it inside. So that was important as well. Running on a recycle setting. Yes. Not taking fresh air from not outside. Not taking fresh air, correct. Which, unfortunately, I learned when I got into our car and turned on the air conditioner without yeah. thinking about that. It blew ash yeah. right into my face. Absolutely. <laughs> the, the other thing that you can do, particularly if you need to go outside, is wear a tight-fitting face and nose mask. But it's got to be a mask that is designed to filter out these very, very small particles. And uh, if you just get the kind of painter's mask you can get at a hardware store, that will probably not do the trick. These masks are quite easily available, but they have to be the right kind of mask. They're disposable. They're, they're not expensive. I can't tell you what the price is. But they have to be rated for this kind of exposure. So people actually, it seems like you're suggesting, might have had a false sense of security wearing one of the white felt painter's masks around. That's not really doing anything to prevent the damage that we're talking about today. Correct. In fact, because of that false sense of security, it could actually do you a disfavor, meaning if you thought that by wearing that mask you'd be safe outside, then clearly you wouldn't be and you'd be, in fact, exposing yourself unnecessarily thinking you were okay and protected, but you really wouldn't be. Uh, so the mask is an added protection if you have to be outside, but it's by no means protection in the sense that it allows you to be outside with impunity. That would be a, an error in judgment. And for patients, as you mentioned, like asthmatics or COPD patients, even if they're inside and safe in a snug sort of compartment where they're not getting new ash in, does it make sense from a medical perspective to recommend that, for example, the asthmatics go ahead and start almost like a prophylactic therapy with their albuterol, uh, MDIs, or even an extra puff of Preventol or one of their inhaled steroids? My personal opinion on this is no. Patients with asthma should be very, very tuned in to their symptomatology and be prepared to start rescue medication should these symptoms develop. But using bronchodilators or steroids before any symptoms developed, I just don't think that's a particularly good idea because you don't know what that's going to do. You do not know that that's going to help, and you might end up taking many doses of this. And, of course, you know, the more you take of anything, the more risk there is to side effects and so forth. So until actual symptoms started to develop, I, I would not think it would be necessary or, or a very good policy to do that. I tend to agree. In my mind, I was even worried maybe if people were doing that, maybe they were allowing the particles to get down even deeper because now you've just dilated. Well, that's possibly true and uh, certainly not a good thing. But just in terms of drug load and so forth, I'm, I'm a great believer in not taking drugs unless they're necessary. So I certainly wouldn't wait. So if I were an asthmatic and started to feel some tightening, some chest tightening, I would certainly not 
not wait at all to start using the rescue medications, but I wouldn't use it prophylactically, I don't believe. The other issue important to bring up is physical activity, and physical activity under these kinds of ash conditions should be definitely curtailed. That's simply for the reason that the more active, more active you are, the more you breathe. There's a essentially linear relationship. Double your activity, you'll double the amount of air that you breathe in, and that means you'll take in more ash. I'd like to thank Dr. Peter Wagner, who's been our guest today. We've been discussing medical lessons learned from the San Diego wildfires. Thank you very much, Dr. Wagner. My pleasure. I'm Dr. Andrew Kukowski, your host of the Boondocks Wilderness and Travel Medicine Show. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. And please feel free to visit us at reachmd.com. And as always, remember, when you're out there, be there.